sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to your home for the Politically Homeless, the podcast. For those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue, if you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth and word of mouth only. Now, last week, the Supreme Court heard two cases involving Section 230, the sole surviving clause in the 1996 Communications Decency Act that gives tech platforms immunity from legal liability over content posted on their platforms. And many feel this is long overdue, blaming social media for allowing things like foreign actors to influence federal elections, radicalizing Americans to commit acts of political violence, and being not so nice to ex-president Donald Trump. Now, these fears echo an earlier period where a new technology, that being radio, was adopted rapidly by the American public, leading to fears it would encourage the spread of communism, anarchism, and other radical ideologies. And what followed was a period of politically motivated censorship worth examining. Now, thankfully, I've got a guy who can explain it all to us. Paul Matzkow, a historian and research fellow at Cato Institute, whose book, The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement, explores the evolution of regulating the airwaves and how it was often used to silence those critical of the federal government. In this conversation, we discuss the parallels between the debate over social media today and the debates over radio in its early days and some of the potential unintended consequences of placing limits on speech on the Internet. Also, one note, we recorded this last week before a recent story broke on reports indicating the COVID pandemic may have started as a result of a lab leak after all. We discussed this in this episode, and I kept it in as it's especially relevant given recent news. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Do do they have February break in New Jersey, or is it the standard spring break? Standard spring break, yeah. Standard spring break, yeah. So, you know, you've lived up in New England, so you know we do... February break, because why not have a week off school on the worst month in the year? And uh, so my kids are here. Part of the reason the recording glitched out is because one of my kids just got Call of Duty. So that is, I'm I'm fighting them for bandwidth right now. So again, if this... That's if this sounds a little like cut up yeah. to the listener, uh, you, you get a you get a week off, and it's a week when they can't really be outside because it's too cold. And it's like, why why would you do this to us? You oh, know? it's torture. Yeah. It's, we never questioned it. I remember. I mean, I grew up in the Boston area. We never questioned it, and I always remember it being like the most yeah. miserable week. I assume it's an artifact of like hunting or something, or or I do you know, know what it is? It was what the flu it? pandemic. In oh yes, in nineteen eighteen. Yeah. Oh. 1920, you know, 1718, whenever yeah, it was, yeah. the Spanish yeah, yeah, yeah. flu. They did yeah. it to just kind of clear the germs out huh. was, with what they knew of uh, with what they knew of pathogens back then. They they knew yeah, that, yeah. You know, if you shut the schools down, everybody will kind of get it out of their system, and then huh. they'll all come and it back. just persisted. 
Yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, and fun. now, of course, we just yeah, all yeah. go away and then bring all these strange <laughs> pathogens from all over the world back into Boston. So it really, yeah, right, um, right, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's really come full circle. You know, part of the reason I, I asked you on was your research focuses on maybe lack of a better phrasing, the regulation of speech on new tech platforms going yeah. all the way back to the radio and, and television and so on. And and I wanted to talk about that because I really felt it would give us a good framework to look at some of the debates going on around things like TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. And maybe to start at the beginning, I'm thinking the best place to start is really the Radio Act of 1927, because that seems to be the first time when the government entered into the role of really regulating what could and couldn't be said. Yeah, so it's interesting. The 1920s to radio were kind of like the 1990s to the internet. And and we can talk more about that comparison in a bit. But what happens with radio, and we have to remember, all old media was once new media, right? Mm -hmm. So there's nothing new under the sun. And they, they tend to follow these very similar patterns of emergence and reaction, regulatory pressure, and and so on. But radio from 1912 till 1927, technically radio was meant and regulated as if it was just for ship-to-shore and ship-to-ship transmission. So you think of the Titanic hitting the iceberg, and there's a radio operator who sends out an SOS. The idea behind that was to allow ships to communicate. And that this was considered marvelous. Like it's going to save lives because ships can communicate to each other, asking for rescue. They can communicate to the shore and, and call for help and keep people updated about where they're located. And so when radio is first introduced, that's what it is. It's a ship technology, right? They didn't think of it as what it becomes, a consumer news and entertainment medium. They could not have imagined what radio would become. But very quickly, um, after World War I, starting in 1920, you get the first, what we kind of recognize as commercial radio, starts in 1920 in Pittsburgh, and it takes off like lightning. Uh, A majority of American households have a radio set by the end of the 20s. So it just goes nuts, and it doesn't resemble what regulators thought it was going to look like, this ship-to-shore communication technology. There's a story that was told to justify the Radio Act of 1927, which was a significant government intervention in a media form that was essentially all but unregulated before that. And the myth went like this. The myth was that radio sprung up and then it got chaotic and people were just claiming starting stations and all their signals were overlapping and causing chaos and confusion and destroying the utility of radio for everyone. Because if you have a station, you know, in two neighboring towns, they both put up a station using the same frequency, they'll cancel each other out. They'll just create white noise, right? They'll they'll conflict, and that hurts everyone. So the idea is we needed the federal government to step in and impose order on the chaotic airwaves. But this was a just-so story. In fact, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the Secretary of Commerce at the time was Herbert Hoover, you know, before his infamous run as president, mm-hmm. failures to respond to the Great Depression in the way that Americans were happy with. He was the Secretary of Commerce and an arch-progressive. I mean, we, today we don't think of Republicans as being progressives, but he was a, a member of the, the progressive wing of the Republican Party who believed that unmediated markets were dangerous and harmful and that smart bureaucrats, technocrats, should come along and impose a little extra order that's missing from chaotic markets. So as a matter of principle, he believed that radio should be more regulated. 
But what he did was, prior to the Federal Radio Act of 1927, there was a system by which if you wanted to have a radio station license, and, and bear in mind, they all used the same frequency back then by federal regulation. Because again, remember, it's about ship to shore. You want all the ships to communicate along a similar frequency. And so there was a stipulated frequency that all radio stations used at first, and they added a few more later. You had to register your radio station. So you'd say, I'm putting a radio station at this power in this location. It was not just a, a free-for-all. In fact, there were, it was regulated essentially by courts. If you thought that someone was violating your turf, you know, your kind of land rush, radio rush territory, you could take them to court. And so the courts had this whole system. There was a, there was a government registry for saying where you were claiming kind of space in the airwaves and courts would adjudicate counterclaims and so on. Well, what uh, Hoover did was he said, we're going to yank the registry out. So the system that was providing order, kind of market-driven, grassroots order, he just went, yoink. And unsurprisingly, you got chaos as a result, which then justified the creation of the Federal Radio Act of 1927. As for what it did, there was some debate. Should the U.S. regulate radio like Britain was starting to regulate radio with the British Broadcasting Company, with the BBC, um, with, uh, you know, government with nationalized airwaves, the, the government owns the airwaves, the government runs the airwaves, you pay taxes on each uh, radio set in your house. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a command economy model of, of the radio. Or, you know, uh, should we do something that's kind of in between, not grassroots market driven, but not full nationalization? And that was Hoover's preference and the preference of most of Congress at the time. Thus, we get the Radio Act, which stipulates that the airwaves are common property. They belong to the people writ largely. You can't have private property rights. Even today, you have no private property rights over your your radio station or television station license. It is the property of the people, which really means the property of the state, for the state to dispose of as it wishes. And... So you merely license a temporary slot of that public airspace. Mm -hmm. And it set up some basic parameters for how to decide who got what license, how powerful, you know, the the radio station would be. It created the Federal Radio Commission that would make these calls that would accept licenses and determine which of the applicants actually got a license and then would every couple of years, you'd have to renew that license to keep your radio station on the air. And so you'd submit a renewal application. And so it turned what was essentially a distributed, decentralized, grassroots media form into a much more regulated space with very different standards when it came to things like free speech and just general operation of the airwaves radically changed as a result of the Radio Act of 27 and the Communications Act of 34. And what was the motivation for doing that? Because from what you told me, it sounds like the market and the courts were doing a pretty good job regulating it prior to the federal government stepping in. Yeah. And maybe the way I would put it was, it's an exaggeration to consider this you know chaotic, disorderly space prior to 27. Mm-hmm. There probably were ways to improve it. So the registry, again, was created as a function of a time when it was, they were thinking about radio as about communication with ships. Yeah. There probably was the need for some sort of evolution of the registry into something that created more formalized property rights. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to essentially common law informal squatters' okay. rights. So okay, we had a sure. system of squatters' rights that worked okay. It didn't work too poorly, but there would have been utility in formalizing those rights. Mm-hmm. But instead, they got rid of the property, the functional property right altogether, which I think was a mistake for reasons we can discuss. Okay, and so with the the FRC, which was really the the predecessor to the FCC. In the early days of radio, what was their role? You know, how did they exercise power and so on? Yeah. Well, almost immediately, the FRC, which it's a government agency, but back then it's pretty small potatoes. It's a new agency made up of half a dozen or so commissioners in D.C. They're all lawyers. So we have a, a room full of like middle-aged white lawyers who didn't grow up on the radio. I mean, you think about Congress today and how, you know, when they, they, they'll bring in a tech company head and they don't know what they're, they, they're basically asking for tech support for their Facebook account from Mark Zuckerberg, you know, embarrassing stuff. (laughs) This was the situation in the 1920s and thirties, a bunch of older, clearly non-diverse lawyers trying to decide how to regulate this space. And what it immediately led to was a lot of consolidation in the industry. So, there is a direct connection between the imposition of this government agency with, with oversight over the airwaves and the rise of network radio because there are now additional advantages to not just being an independent radio station owned by whoever. Now let's band together into these larger conglomerated networks so that when a new license opens up at the FRC F, and then the FCC, we can say, look, you should give us the license because it's worth a lot of money having a license. Give mm-hmm. us the license because we've got better capital financing. We've got newer, better, stronger equipment. We've got regulatory compliance. We've got lawyers arguing our case. So that whole system encouraged industry concentration. So radio in the late 20s into the early 30s got progressively less weird, less diverse, less mm-hmm. radical. It became much more corporate and a lot more kind of consensus building. So you can just see the steady progression of groups that once had a shot at having a radio station license. They were just a little too outside the conformist norms. They no longer had a shot. So there was big arguments around uh, whether or not socialists and labor unions, radical labor unions would be allowed to operate radio stations. Immigrant groups started having a harder time getting access to the airwaves because they used to broadcast in the 20s in foreign languages. They'd say, like, we're serving the Slovaks in the southern Chicago ghetto yeah. and in, with Slovak language programming. And the FRC says, well, no, we, we have an interest. There's a public interest for the U.S. to – for people in the U.S. to speak English. So we're going to take your radio station license and to give it to a station that promises the program in English. And this was true for black radio stations, true for radical – groups from both sides of the political spectrum, they started having a harder time precisely because the federal government was basically choosing winners and losers. You know, there's there's a bunch of things I want to just highlight here at this point, because I think what you said about the early days of the internet in the 20s really resonated with me, because I, mm-hmm. I think in the very, very beginning, for those of us who can remember it, I don't know if meritocracy is the right word, but it was quite literally a place where anyone could have a very large outsized presence. And as the market has matured, as consolidation has happened, that weirdness has become throttled. It hasn't disappeared. And I think, and we'll probably get into this a little later on, but when you look at new new platforms, like once it was YouTube, then it was Instagram, now it's TikTok, you have people who can come in new entrants and really get 
a huge voice yeah. as a result of, of these platforms early on. For good or for ill, too. I mean, absolutely. Well, 100%. And then part two, I think it's worth kind of framing this in a, from a historical standpoint, which is when you're talking about the 20s, this was a period where our where there was a great fear of radicalism. There was a great fear of anarchists, mm-hmm. communists, socialists. And, yeah. and I think this will come up in our discussions about the internet. But I'd imagine there was this fear that if you give these people a megaphone, we're going to have way more communists, way more socialists, way more anarchists. Sure. Yeah, well, we're coming off, and when you talk about like 1920, we're coming off the Palmer raids where you know the attorney mm-hmm. general is cracking down on anarchists some of which, indeed, there were, you know, anarchists, we have to remember, throw, mailing letter bombs and throw, throwing, bombing judges and police officers and so on, yeah. the generation prior to this. But there was very much this idea that radio was too radical. And it was, you know, when I talk about them being anti-immigrant, part of that energy is they associated anarchism, which was their big terrorist boogeyman at the time, with immigrants. Mm-hmm. And then by the 1930s, the concern has shifted from anarchists and kind of domestic terrorists in that regard to worries about totalitarianism. So by the late 1930s, it's, oh no, if the government doesn't regulate the radio, you'll have fascists and communists taking over the airwaves, spreading their insidious ideology, corrupting good, honest Americans. And so the government needs to step in and shut that down. Yeah. And and there was also a fear too, when they started regulating that because of the consolidation in the industry, you might have a very small number of companies effectively controlling the information the majority of Americans were consuming, correct? Yeah. Well, and that's that's where the, the corollary is interesting. It, I, I think with any new media form, when it emerges, it's always going to be weirder, more diverse, more distributed than its kind of matured form. As industries mature, they do tend to consolidate. You know, this is true of the automobile industry. You go from literally hundreds, if not thousands, of car companies in the early days of the 20th century to the big three within half a century. Mm-hmm. It's a natural for some consolidation to happen because there's network effects that benefit the larger player. Size conveys mm-hmm. market advantage. But you tend to get more concentration. There's probably a healthy, optimal level of concentration that allows for both competition and benefits from the larger network effects. Mm-hmm. But when government intervenes, you often get excessive consolidation. So I would say that radio was going to concentrate over time. We were yeah. going to end up with network radio. But I would argue that we ended up with far more concentrated network radio than we would have without the FRC mm-hmm. or the FCC, and then we have with the internet today. So, you know, the internet is somewhat concentrated among among a handful of platforms. I think, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Google, mm-hmm. you know, so on. But it's it's not as concentrated as radio was by the 1940s, say, mm-hmm. when you had essentially the largest networks, largest three networks controlled something like 90 plus percent of licenses by 1940. So within 20 years, you went from essentially all independent radio stations to three networks controlling 90 plus percent of radio stations. That's incredible. I want to talk about consolidation in the tech sector because I think there's some important, some important things to note there. But before we get into that, when I was prepping for this conversation, there were two presidents who jumped out at me as either stars or villains in this story, <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah. One is Roosevelt and one is Kennedy. And both of them used the regulatory power of the government to really dictate what views were expressed. 
mm-hmm. more or less. Mm-hmm. Did I understand yeah. that correctly? No, you're 100% right. So Roosevelt, his administration is connected to what we call the Mayflower Doctrine, mm-hmm. which then over time evolves into what's known as the Fairness Doctrine, which we associate with the Kennedy administration, which I wrote my book about. So back up a little bit. So we, we when folks think of Roosevelt and media, they'll often immediately think of the fireside chats, that FDR was very good at creating this felt intimacy. I call it a simulcra of intimacy, or you could call it a parasocial relationship is, is the term we often use today, that people think they know creators, even though they don't really know them. FDR was parasocial innovator par excellence. So he would speak into people's houses while they sat by the fireside. It was very effective for him politically. Um, A lot of his appeal was built on him being the first president to really get the popularity boosting power of this new mass media form. But he was annoyed by the late 30s that newspaper owners started buying up radio stations, especially the new kind of innovative FM radio stations that were just starting to be considered, just starting to come on the airwaves. And the newspaper owners by the late 30s skewed more conservative, I think by the election of 36, an outright majority of newspaper editorial boards had opposed him. By 38, the midterms, they were like two to one opposed to the Democratic Party winning the midterm re-election. So he's worried that these more conservative newspaper owners are buying up radio stations. And so he, uh, as one FCC commissioner commissioner put it later, he put the blowtorch on (laughs) the FCC chairman, guy named Larry Fly, to do something about this, to stop conservative newspaper owners from moving in on his turf. He's really good with radio. People like him on the radio. It's helping him win landslide elections, keep the conservative newspapers out. One of the ramifications of that was this thing called the Mayflower Doctrine. What had happened was a radio station in New England, just outside of Boston, the license was up for renewal. And the existing license holder was generally anti-New Deal, anti-Roosevelt. I mean, they, they most of the time they just aired general interest content and some general interest news. But sometimes the station would editorialize. They would put out, say, hey, look, uh, we don't agree with this New Deal legislation. And you know, we don't think Roosevelt's doing a good job with this. And they were part of a regional network, the Yankee network. They were relatively well financed. Normally, renewals were automatic for groups like that. But the FCC, under pressure from FDR, goes with an alternative applicant, so a disgruntled former employee, like a one-man shop, basically, yeah. <laughs> and would not normally have a sniff at getting the license. But they were going to give it to the, the challenger, to this upstart, because essentially they said, and this is the Mayflower Doctrine, you don't own the airwaves. I'm paraphrasing here. You, it is not the right of a station owner to editorialize. Since the airwaves belong to everyone, you don't have a right to just express your own opinion. Mm. The public is better served if radio station owners don't editorialize. And uh, so you're not allowed to use this as if it were your own private property and thus your own speech. You don't have a First Amendment right on the airwaves. And this was immediately controversial. There was a ton of industry pushback. So the Mayflower Doctrine was more notional than an effective kind of standard that was imposed But it signaled FDR's interest in uh, he had an advantage as a political incumbent who was a kind of a prime mover who grasped the political power of this medium. He had an interest in using government power to maintain that advantage, to keep dissent off the airwaves. And he used that power 
to the extent that he could. So that's that's FDR. Then this Mayflower Doctrine, by 1949, there's a whole series of arguments over the, it was the early 40s. By the end of the decade, it kind of formalized into a, a statement by the FCC that called, it's kind of the early origins of what we call the Fairness Doctrine. The idea was that, okay, okay, fine. You have a radio station license. You're allowed to editorialize. We get that we can't tell you not to editorialize. We went too far. Sorry about that. <laughs> in fact, we the, and part of the problem was that if you tell people they can't editorialize and they're worried that they'll lose their very valuable station license for editorializing, it's better off not to express any opinion at all. Mm. It's better off to just remove controversial content. It has a chilling effect on speech. And they were kind of recognize that. Whoops. We want people to be discussing what they call quote, controversial issues of public importance. We just don't want them to be so one-sided. We don't want to make old FDR feel bad, right? Okay, so what they do with the fairness auction is say, okay, you actually should air these editorials. You should editorialize, air these points of view, but you should do so in a fair and balanced way. And both words actually show up in this document, which is funny for those of us who grew up with Fox News. Where yes. fair and balanced. And yeah. uh, just like the Fox News slogan, I'm not so sure the 1949 fair and balanced meant much more than the, the you know, was worth more than the ink it was printed on. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was the idea, though, that you should be fair and balanced. That, yes, you can editorialize, you can present your point of view, but you should also represent other points of view on that controversial issue. Um, and I'll give an example from the 1960s. There was a right-wing broadcaster, a guy named Bundy, who accused the Johnson administration, Lyndon Johnson, at the Gulf of Tonkin. He accused him of of concocting an excuse to escalate the war in Vietnam. This was the – there was basically a U.S. ship fired on some North Vietnamese ships. Both sides claimed that the other started it, and it was used as justification for us to put more boots on the ground in Vietnam. Well, we know – ironically, we know today – that it, that that's precisely correct. That Johnson, <laughs> he famously said to one of his advisors, I don't care if we fired on a North Vietnamese vessel. I don't care if we fired on a whale. It doesn't matter. This is useful. It's, we're, we got yeah. an election coming up. Um, it's useful to claim that they fired on us. And uh, so we know that Bundy was right when he accused the Johnson administration of this. Well, under the Fairness Doctrine, stations had an obligation to present both points of view in theory. And so a team of Democratic operatives went to the radio stations that aired that program and said, hey, under the Fairness Doctrine, if you're not careful, next time your license comes up for renewal, we'll file a complaint with the FCC and say your license should be taken away because you aired this guy criticizing the Johnson administration. So you better give us free, not paid for, free response time or else you're going to be in trouble with your license. And so they did. And actually, this team of operatives reported back that the exact number, the hundreds of hours they acquired of free airtime in the last weeks before the election and just kind of bragging about how effective this was at silencing anti-Johnson dissent. I'm curious, in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, as you were looking at the way certain people in, in both parties for different reasons were approaching the issue of information or of disinformation how were you viewing that, knowing what you know of history? Because mm. the one thing I can think of is the lab leak theory, which at first was thought of as a total conspiracy theory. Then later it emerged, hey, it might be true. And I don't know what the status is now. I don't really care much. I don't think it matters. Yeah. But, yeah. but the bottom line is, is there, was a, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that people were saying this is false, and then it turned out to be true. How were you viewing that whole thing? 
uh, that I think I'd offer up as a cautionary tale, which is that the the line between misinformation and information is between three letters and the rest of the word, right? Like mm. um, that is a very fine line to discern. And government, the state by its nature is a very blunt tool for deciding what the difference is. And so even if you can find individual cases where like, okay, they made the right call, uh, you're going to find a lot of cases where they made a terrible call to the detriment of the public interest. So, I mean, the classic example from history of the right call, arguably, if you don't look at the principle of free speech, but if you just look at the outcomes, there was a radio broadcaster in the 30s um, named Goat Gland Brinkley was his, <laughs> was his name, Douglas Brinkley. And he, um, he was a patent medicine peddler. And his yeah. idea was that if you took goat glands and literally, I don't mean this metaphorically or like you literally implant goat testes into human, in the, you know, into, into people, into their, <laughs> into their testicles, into their bodies, you can cure them of anything, cancer, consumption, you name it. Think of it as kind of like early homeopathic version of like, it's a good corollary here of, uh, um, oh. Like nugenics or something like that. Oh, you know? oh, it's kind of like a, what if stem cell theory, but super primitive. Right? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Okay. okay. I mean, stem cell stuff works. It actually works. This is just the same thing, but they didn't really understand how the mechanisms worked right. Yeah. Right. It was too early. So he would have a, he had a radio station. And he would say, look, here's a interview with one of my patients who had cancer and now doesn't because they got a goat gland. He would sell ground up goat testes to people for large sums of money. So the regulators shut him down. They took him off the airwaves. They revoked his license because of, he was spreading medical misinformation and they were right. This is, <laughs> you know, it is not good medical information to tell people that they need to get a goat glance implanted in their testicles. So, so in this case, it worked out just fine, right? That they pulled him off the airwaves. But of course that ignores that. That is the case that is, 100% of the time brought up when it comes to discussing why we needed the federal government in 27 and 34 to impose more regulation on the airspace. What they don't mention are all the people who lost their licenses because they were socialists, labor union mm-hmm. organizers, black, and so on, right? Because it, it was no less obvious to a panel of white lawyers in D.C. in the 1930s that they should remove Goat Gland Brinkley as it was just as obvious to them that, of course, they should remove socialists from the airways. Of mm. course, people should have to speak English on the on the airways. So my point is the government is a really blunt force instrument for making what are very fine distinctions. And, of course, with the pandemic, with the COVID pandemic, you can imagine if we had some sort of ministry of misinformation or a ministry of information dedicated to opposing misinformation, well, that line would have changed quite a lot. I mean, the early days – the official line was that people should not mask. Yes. Don't mask. Masking yes. is bad. It's actually harmful to mask. And that's because it was not it was said in good faith, the idea that it was fomite transmission, that it was particles on surfaces. Wash your hands. My poor kid, his hands were chapped and bleeding for months oh, there because they were yes. washing multiple times a day. It was brutal. So it was a good faith argument. But it turns out that what was the information was actually the misinformation. And because, you know, there's inertia behind these things, institutions are slow to change, governments are slow to change. It really took almost a year for the government line to officially change to, oh, no, you should mask. Everyone should mask all the time. And and I think that was the right advice. But it took them almost a year to come to (laughs) the right line. So the line between misinformation and information 
shifted based on a year. And so it would have been very bad to have a government agency telling everyone officially not to mask, imposing penalties on broadcasters and news producers that said you should mask despite the official mandate. So that, that's why I would encourage folks to think about is that, yes, you can find applications where like, good, government shut down some bad speech I don't like. But don't forget that for every case like that, there are many cases the government shutting down good speech that you do like. And, you know, while shutting down misinformation, also shutting down information. I discussed this in an episode about a year or so ago. And really what it seems like is going on now is rather than any explicit regulation, there's the threat of regulation. And that almost seems to be used as a cudgel to get the tech companies to fall in line when there's something being said on their platforms that they don't quite agree with. Well, and here we have an irony. We can talk about the Supreme Court cases that are uh, yes. you know, oral arguments yeah, recently. But the irony of this is that after 2016, you know, most journalists were not happy with the election of Donald Trump. Right? Yeah. And so there was this standard, who do we blame for this? Mm-hmm. And one of the objects, popular objects of blame was to blame social media. That's Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And that's why Donald Trump won, which since has been shown to be an exaggeration. But people thought that, that was that's who fault its fault was. It was the inadequate content moderation of tech platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and so on. And so there was a lot of pressure from really progressive politicians and, and activists on tech companies to do more content moderation, remove more content. You're being way too laissez-faire. We want you to remove anything from hate groups. We want you to remove misinformation, remove, you know, stuff that goes against the World Health Organization or the CDC's guidelines for health stuff that goes, remove the insurrectionists, remove even Black Lives Matter groups that call for violence, remove more stuff. And so the platforms responded by removing more stuff. And since then, we've seen the implications that it didn't work out the way we thought, that in removing more stuff, the platforms create a lot of false positives. Like if you talk to any black creators on TikTok, they'll tell you that it's been a pain to be, to try to talk about issues related to race on TikTok because their filter can't tell the difference between anti-racism and Mm -hmm. racism, right? Mm -hmm. And so the platforms did pull more stuff down, but now we're not so happy they pulled down stuff that we, some of the stuff that we like. You know, they accidentally kept, they can't tell the difference between someone calling for a new Holocaust and anti anti-Semitism and someone sharing historical information about the horrors of the actual Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. Anti-Semitism and pro-Semitism look very alike to an algorithmic filter. So th- these court cases going on today are kind of downstream from the platforms doing what we asked and us not being happy with how they performed. So it's all very ironic. Yeah. And you you brought up the two Supreme Court cases that were just heard this week. So there was Twitter versus Tamnay, and then Gonzalez versus Google, which I have to say, odd that you should have two alliterative court cases. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> on the same subject matter, but both but both relate to the presence of quote unquote radicalizing content mm-hmm. on tech platforms and their ability to inspire violence. And I think to a lot of people, it makes sense that tech platforms would be responsible for mm-hmm. content that might inspire a violent act. But what's the counter argument to that stance? Well, the counter argument is that if you apply that logic to any other aspect of life, it immediately falls apart. It no longer feels so commonsensical. Mm-hmm. So there's a good paper by a colleague of mine, Jennifer Huddleston, and, and a fellow named Brent Scorup, where they show that 
these protections, and they're known as Section 230. If you ever hear that jargon, we're talking about this concept. Whether internet platforms should be held liable for content that third parties, that users post on them. Yeah. That that evolved from jurisprudence around bookstore regulation. So people often don't remember this, but in the in the olden days, prior in the early 20th century, if you were a bookstore, local governments, local activists might be angry that you're sharing certain books. Maybe your books talk about sex. Maybe your books have swear words in them. Maybe the books are filled with communist ideology or or so on. You get the idea. And so book banning was by by law was quite common. Mm. Until the mid-20th century, a cornerstone case was called Smith v. California in 54, where the Supreme Court finally weighed in and said, no, 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 look, if we held every bookstore owner liable for the contents of every book that they sell, if we consider them, and the, the fancy phrase was, if we call them scienters, which is an old Latin phrase for knowers, if we, we say they, uh-huh. they have to know what's in their book because they're going to be liable for the contents – They'll stop selling very many books at all. They're only going to sell books they've read and that they think people won't give them a hard time about selling. It'll have a chilling effect on speech and consumers will get less information and knowledge because of that chilling effect. So we – and we kind of get that intuitively today. It would feel weird if I came if, – if, if Donald Trump, say, threatened to sue not just Michael Wolff or one of the other people who have written negative biographies about him and his administration. It, and he has. He's threatened to sue the authors – for defamation and libel and so on. But imagine he said, I'm going to sue Barnes and Noble for selling that book by Michael Wolff. Mm-hmm. We'd all kind of scratch our heads and be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's not the bookstore's fault that the author defamed you. Go after the author. And just because the bookstore decided to put one book on the buy it now shelf right in the middle as you come into the store versus on the bottom shelf, you know, they, they, they prioritized one book over another that's not a thing you can sue them for, you know, saying that, well, you you privilege some books over others. You put the Bible on the bottom shelf and the Quran on the top shelf, so I'm suing you, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, we would all kind of scratch our heads and be like, no, that's not a thing. It's become commonsensical that you can't judge these platforms. Think of bookstores as platforms that stand between authors and buyers of books. That You can't blame the platform for its decision-making process over which books to carry and which books to prioritize. The Mm -hmm. same thing applies to the internet. Section 230 is a logical application, a formal application of that jurisprudence around bookstores to the internet. And it says these platforms are just like a bookstore is. They're hosting content made by someone else, by users in this case. Mm -hmm. And you can't hold them any more liable than you would a bookstore owner for which books end up on the shelves. You have to go after the author if they say something defamatory or libelous or so on. So they have this shield against civil liability because of Section 230. But it's not some weird new innovation. That's often how it's framed by critics of Section 230 and those who want to see Google and Twitter in these court cases taken down a notch. They talk about it as this new special right given to big tech. But the reality is a natural evolution of real world principles applying to things like bookstores. Um, And I think if you think about in like meat space in the real world, you'll get intuitively why it's really no different in quality than what's going on with the internet. Got it. Got it. So I'm going to ask you a question and I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is going to be, but I want to hear it from you anyway. And I'll, I'll tee it up with this. It actually gets back to TikTok. So when I first got on TikTok, they instantly profiled me and they said, okay, mm. middle-aged dad, 
we're going to show videos of a bunch of scantily clad 20-somethings saying they're into older guys. And I just got that nonstop for the first couple of weeks. I'm proud to say those women have now disappeared and it's been nice replaced with economists and historians. And, you know, it's a nice window into my brain, which I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy with. But again, that say that to say that we're in a situation now where maybe unlike with a bookstore, unlike a radio station or a television station, these algorithms are able to know you on a personal level. They're able to understand what resonates with you, what keeps you active, and they're able to deliver information in a way that we've never seen before. And when I look at these platforms, I wonder if we know enough about their impact on the human mind to really accurately assess any potential damage it could do to society. And so I'm interested in your take on this, because the two cases that are in front of the Supreme Court are both related to content that they say inspired acts of violence. Is there merit to that argument? Is there a huge gray unknown area in the human mind here that we need to pay attention to when we're talking about whether or not to regulate? Yeah. Well, I'll first make the note that it is perfectly legitimate to talk about and be concerned about downside consequences or risks or the potential of downside consequences. But I just want to start before we go there with noting that it is there's a huge upside. It's great. TikTok's great. I make TikToks. I consume TikToks. I learn from TikToks. And you're absolutely yeah. right. that it. And this is true of social media in general. If I want to fix something in my house, like I just put in a new stone paver to insulate my floor from my wood stove. I did that by watching three TikTok videos and triangulating best practices. I've never done anything like that before. And I did that because of YouTube, right? You, it, I go to mm. these platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, to learn stuff that, you know, once upon a time, I, my poor father, he had these like Reader's Digest, big old thick books, like Guide to Home Handymaning 101. And you look at them, yeah. it's like there's a few pictures. It is incredibly obtuse. How anyone did anything back then around their house yeah. escapes me. So I want to start by noting huge upside. I love these platforms. And let's not forget the upside benefits by fixating mm-hmm. too much on the downside risks. Sure. I'll also note my, my favorite example of the, you know, oftentimes when people talk about like TikTok is just scantily clad underage girls dancing, it's it's folks kind of telling on themselves. Like there, there's this, there's a path <laughs> yeah. Pastor that went viral yeah. being like, it's just a bunch of just naked girls gyrating. And it's like, dude, that's because that's what you're watching. I mean, like it knows how long yeah. you're staying on each video. If you if you don't watch it, it goes away. But there are, you know, downside risks or potential hazards that are worth yeah. talking about. I, I think the the caution, and this is a caution, I can't prove this. Yeah. But is that every time we have a new mass media form emerge, very similar complaints bubble up usually from older generations who aren't native to that form. And then in the cold light of hindsight, it looks a little bit silly in in retrospect. So a couple of examples. In the early days of radio, people were worried about, well, look, listening is different than reading. Listening has a power over hearers. And there are signs to indicate that, you know, yeah, it was a very effective tool for forming parasocial relationships. And it's radio that caused the rise of totalitarianism. There's no Mussolini. There's no Hitler without radio. And there was a lot of concern and panic really around this fact. But what people, in in hindsight, what we realize is that the same tools that can be used for evil, if you will, can be used for good 
and that anti-authoritarianism also bubbled up via radio. It also realized that there's a tendency to exaggerate the way in which new media has a hold on our brains. So they used to think of radio as like this captive audience. They can't help. You're not in control. The radio speaks, you listen, which seems a little weird today. We don't think of radio having that kind of immediate controlling power that they did early on. Or you can fast forward, think the 90s, where it was like, oh no, violent video games. If our kids, there's this new media form, the video game, that older people don't play. They don't really understand it. Only mostly younger people play this thing. And surely they'll see, they'll they'll do violence digitally, and that will lead them to do violence in the real world. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a logical complaint yeah. to have. That's not how it works. There's a huge body of literature from the last quarter century showing that playing violent video games has no causal relationship with doing violence in the real world. And so time and time again, every time a new form, new mass media, a new form emerges, people are worried that it will capture people's brains. It will control them. It'll lead to negative consequences. And it generally turns out fine, right? And so it's possible the internet's different. Maybe it is, you know, because of this, the infinity scroll, the maybe it's somehow, you know, the way at which the dopamine releases and you just keep swiping and swiping. And so maybe it's fundamentally different, but you know, that would be in defiance of the historical pattern. Okay. Well, you're, you're talking to somebody who grew up on satanic heavy metal and <laughs> you're not fine, right? I have yet to drink <laughs> blood. That's not my own. So, uh, is that a sacrificial goat I see behind you? Yeah, yeah, I, I keep, yeah, that's it. I keep the ram skull down out of the camera shot. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. And if you didn't and could keep this between us, I would greatly appreciate it. I've included a link to Paul's book and social media accounts in the show notes, as well as a link to sign up for YDHTY's newsletter, which includes a summary of this episode and other issues of the week. Now, a few things worthy of note in this episode. Both radio and social media were technologies that gained adoption during periods of huge financial and political disruption. We didn't care about social media when it was people posting pictures of food, but once it veered into speech and ideology we felt objectionable or dangerous, our regard for the First Amendment bent a little bit. And the same thing happened in the early days of radio, where literal anarchists were throwing literal bombs at literal judges, and in attempting to box these people out of the conversation taking place over the airwaves, we also found it amplified the prejudices of those who made the rules, denying immigrants and minorities access to the same channels. Now, I couldn't help but point out the parallels between LBJ's reaction to criticisms of the Gulf of Tonkin incident and suppression of theories over the origin of COVID. I think it's clear that the interests of those in government don't always sync up with the greater good and empowering government to limit speech on any platform will, not just can, will be used for the wrong reasons. And just as radio gave people unprecedented access to information, so has the internet. And it's allowed both good and bad ideas to spread worldwide overnight. And I don't think there's a way for us to suppress some of the bad ideas without restricting access to the good ones, which would be a net loss for everybody. Now, I'll wrap this up, oddly enough, with a quote from Plato, who was discussing the invention of writing. And the quote goes, They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written. 
calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. In short, the argument that new forms of communication will make people dumber and more susceptible to bad actors is literally as old as the written word. As always, music courtesy of Quellertack, YDHTY's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye. Sally, 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 Sally,